Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, we've gotten a lot of great feedback from the announcement of our CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit. If you haven't already heard, CanMed 23 is going to be bigger and better than any of our previous events in a few very important ways. First, as you've noticed, the name is a little different. It's now the CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit, which highlights both the nature of breakthroughs being presented at the event and the inclusion of principles to fund those efforts. Second, CanMed 23 will be held at the Marriott Resort at Marco Island, Florida. This will give attendees like you the chance to fit in a little R&R at one of the most beautiful vacation venues in the world with amenities like world-class golf, tennis, yoga, massages on the beach, and more. Third, the summit will feature immersive workshops to bring you up to speed on the latest in capital markets, medical training, and deep dives into cultivation and laboratory technology. Although CAMED 23 will be different in these ways, some things will remain the same. We will still feature world-class oral presentations in the areas of cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, curated by our CanMed Advisory Board for impact and importance. In fact, our call for abstracts is open now, and you can submit your abstract for consideration for a CanMed 23 presentation. Just use the link in the show description. We will also continue to share our knowledge with the cannabis community through our CanMed archive, social media platforms, and of course, the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast. So even if you can't join us in Marco Island, you can still be part of the CanMed community. However, if you do want to join us at CanMed 23, you can request your invitation now at canmedevents.com. Our guest today is Kyle Baker. CSO and co-founder of EcoBuds and Clean Theory. He founded the companies based on a deep understanding and experience in socio-technical design and econometric modeling and their application to disease mitigation. As a cannabis entrepreneur, Kyle focuses his attention on scientific verification methods and weighted decision-making to ensure the end-to-end delivery of clean and compliant cannabis to consumers most notably medical patients. Clean cannabis is one of the biggest challenges facing growers. Microbes, viruses, and pests can devastate cannabis and hemp crops, greatly reducing product quality and yield. Furthermore, growers must also meet state-mandated testing requirements for microbial contamination before the product can be sold in a dispensary. During our conversation, we discuss the different types of pests and pathogens and how they affect growers yield and product quality, why many disease and pest management solutions used in the food industry do not apply to cannabis, how overly onerous testing requirements can force growers to irradiate product, the risks and downsides of irradiation and remediation, common sources for contamination in cannabis grows, and steps growers can take to prevent pest and disease in their facilities. Before we get to my conversation with Kyle, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Medicinal Genomics. Medicinal Genomics uses its unmatched knowledge of the cannabis genome and the microbes that impact cannabis plants 
to create a diverse set of testing solutions that improve crop yield, accelerate breeding, and ensure product safety. MGC's PathoSeq qPCR detection assays are trusted by the top cannabis testing labs for microbial compliance testing, and growers also trust PathoSeq to screen crops for harmful pathogens. Learn more at medicinalgenomics.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kyle Baker. Good morning, Kyle. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Morning, Ben. Pleasure to be here. All right. So I've been looking forward to talking to you about how growers can prevent the various microbes and viruses and bugs from wreaking havoc on their operations, because I think your experience and your approach is one that aligns well with what we're doing here at Medicinal Genomics. But before we get into that, I think it's important to set the stage for any listeners who might not be cultivators and might not understand just how costly microbial and pathogen contamination really is. So if you could please explain why is disease management so critical for cannabis growers? Well, Ben, it has broad reaching effects uh, in having improper disease control, not only to the consumer, but also employees and even stakeholders of people who own companies. Uh, so we can start with uh, the stakeholders of who's involved in the cannabis industry. Uh, these are people who use cannabis products, whether it's edibles or smokables, uh, and the people that work there. And I would say the people that work there uh, are, are probably the most co- of concern uh, because these are the people that are growing uh, medicine and recreational products that are exposed to different pathogens 40 hours a week. Um, and if we think about that and we think about bioaerosols, and we've had about a two-year masterclass in bioaerosols with COVID, uh, we understand that those things can affect human beings. So if you have things like aspergillus floating in the air all the time, there's a very good chance that employees can start to develop extreme allergies or things like pulmonary aspergillosis. And then from the consumer standpoint, you know, people are allergic to molds um, and other pathogens like bacteria. Uh, So if you eat uh, an edible that has, say, penicillin in it, uh, there's a good, you know, and you're allergic to it, you could die. Uh, And then immunocompromised individuals, we're talking about some of the most compromised people in our society that are seeking out cannabis as a medicine. And if there's something in it that could affect their health, they should probably know about it. We should probably do anything we can do to prevent that. And, and honestly, nobody in the cannabis industry to date that I have seen uh, has taken any liability in relation to any type of uh, consumer ill effects, whether that was sick or, or not. And typically, in every other parallel industry, whether it's uh, lettuce or uh, even auto manufacturing, those manufacturers take responsibility for their uh, their quality. All right, excellent. And as I said before, I, I really feel that what you're doing aligns well with us at Medicinal Genomics, because as you know, we create a lot of the, the testing assays that the testing labs are using to test the product before it gets to the dispensary for microbial contamination. So uh, yeah, to your point, really making sure that the products are safe before they ever get to to the consumer. And 
I think the way we sort of look at it is there's there's sort of these two buckets for types of contamination um, that can be in a grow or on a product. So first you have the human pathogens, which you we described great, which is the yeasts and molds and bacteria that that could potentially make consumers or even employees sick. And then the other thing that we've been more recently getting into is also the plant pathogens. So the microbes or pests that can actually affect the yield or potency of the plants or even even kill the plants in some cases. So um, do you help growers with that as well? That's a big aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, plant-borne pathogens are a serious thing. And, you know, you, you don't see them until it's too late. We normally observe the symptoms of them, but not the causality. Uh, I mean, you can see uh, like, so for example, fusarium uh, can wipe out an entire crop and can run through an irrigation system. Uh, we had a case in, um, oh, where was it? I think South Carolina in the hemp industry mm. where cornosporia, of all things, which is a, a uh, soybean-borne fungus came through, presented itself like pesticide damage, wiped out acres of crops. So, yeah, I mean, uh, from a shareholder standpoint, uh, as running a business, plant pathogens can devastate a crop and then become rampant uh, throughout an entire facility. No, that's interesting. In South Carolina, was that an indoor or outdoor facility? It was outdoor, and what? And so that was a, a subtropical fungal species that seemed to get swept from one of the hurricanes from the Florida. Typically, is where it occurs. So there was a hurricane that came through, and that wind and, and weather brought that all the way up into uh, that South Carolina region, where wow. it typically doesn't go. That's wild. Um, I, I talked with a grower down in South Carolina before in one of the previous podcasts, and she said that, you know, contam microbial contamination down there, it's just like, it's just a fact of life. And okay. really, they, what she's really interested in or really, you know, focusing on was really looking at, you know, disease resistant genetics, because it's so hard for them to, to try to prevent it, especially in an outdoor, in an outdoor setting. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the challenges with growing um, uh, under different regulatory regimes. We have compliance testing and growing outside uh, is very difficult to prevent, uh, you know, certain disease issues, whether it's uh, plant pathogens or ones that can affect humans, because we're not because the cannabis industry is not afforded the typical or traditional agricultural tool set that you get for, say, growing a tomato. Um, you know, you can put something on uh, a tomato like uh, microbial fungicide, for example, uh, and it prevents mold and you can wash it off. But on cannabis, uh, if you burn it, it turns into, I think, what is it? Hydrogen cyanide gas, which is, you know, that has essentially been eliminated from the, the legal markets. Still happens every once in a while, but I don't burn my tomato. I don't smoke my tomato. Well, yeah, and that's and that's another great point with um, with aspergillus as well, right? I mean, that's a that's a a pathogen, a, a fungus that can develop on your um, your onions or some of your produce. But again, you're not inhaling that product, and that's one of the major risks with aspergillus is it can create that lung infection. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, one of your guys, uh, Kevin. Uh, posted an article on the F eight variant of uh, aspergillus that's used to combat. Uh, pathogenic aspergillus species, but is safe for humans. And our current testing regime doesn't differentiate between good pathogens and bad pathogens. 
I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a yogurt, but bacteria does that, you know, and it's perfectly healthy for us to use and consume, but in cannabis, you can't use it. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you bring up regulations because um, kind of brings us to one of the topics that I wanted to talk about. And, you know, you talk about the different states, they have different, a different battery of tests that you need to do on the product before it can get to the dispensary. Um, common ones, total yeast and mold, total aerobic count. Um, but each state has different limits for the amount of microbe that they're, uh, that you're allowed to have on there. And some states in particular, and I know, I, I believe it's your home state of Illinois, has a pretty low threshold for total yeast and mold, something like 1,000 CFUs per gram, which is, you know, 10 or even 100 fold lower than some of the other states out there. And because of that, I think a lot of growers are resorting to irradiation to pass compliance testing. Um right. I know you have some thoughts on that, and I know that your approach is different. It's more of a preventative approach, but I was hoping we could talk a bit about irradiation and, you know, what are the different techniques and some of the risks or drawbacks of that approach? Yeah, well, I mean, so irradiation has been around for a long time, and I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression that I'm, say, against irradiation. I'm not. Um, what I'm against is uh, unsafe working conditions uh, and understanding that, uh, you know, when we use irradiation, it should be, if we don't have to use it, it's better. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the, the history of irradiation, it was developed by the DOD, Department of Defense, uh, way back when. And, um, you know, they used it during uh, the Hart Federal Building anthrax attacks, right, uh, to deactivate uh, anthrax in the mail. And what they found was that uh, the amount of irradiation needed to actually kill a spore former uh, was so high uh, that it actually degraded the mail completely. It was unreadable, unusable, fell apart. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's not it's not a um, it, it's not a a one size fits all method. You know, it can fail. You could put in contaminated product that is so contaminated that irradiation is just not going to help. And they do use irradiation, like the FDA deems it safe. So does the World Health Organization. Um, you know, so if we look at other countries to where we have imports of uh, different spices, generally speaking, those spices do not meet a USDA quality sanitary standard. So what do they do? Well, they irradiate it. Uh, the result is that it reduces the terpene profiles. If you look at something like a peppercorn, for example. Uh, they've used irradiation on that, um, and it reduces that uh, terpene, pepperdine, I think it is, or pepperine. I'll have to brush up on my uh, different uh, chemical profiles there, but it does reduce it. So you are reducing your product quality uh, by irradiation. I think the bigger concern with irradiation is the people actually using it and the safety profile around actual use. You know, things do go wrong with technology. Just a reality. I mean, your microphone didn't work just moments ago, for example. Um, so, you know, when you're dealing with irradiation, we're talking about something that can be very hazardous to human health. And is there adequate training being provided to the employer, employee, uh, to administer that? And then you have other things that are going on with irradiation that we have observed, uh, where that, um, you know, they'll just irradiate the sample going to the lab. 
So if we look at how lab testing should occur, it needs to be a representative sample. So everything that was done in that sample in that batch needs to to be uh, the same. But if I'm only irradiating the sample, I could have contaminated product that's doesn't uh, doesn't uh, represent that whole 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 picture. So. Yeah, unfortunately, that's a that's a problem on the potency side too, right? Where you know some growers is. are just taking the the tops of the best plants that have the highest concentration of of potency and then applying that to the whole batch. So it's not right, you know. And it speaks to a broader broader uh, problem: is there are no standards in the cannabis industry. There are none. Um, it does not exist. Now, there's a a, a pretty a big effort to get them there. Uh, through voluntary consensus, uh, but it's just not there yet. I, I believe you guys have one of the few standards in the industry through uh, the AOAC. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you know, more and more every day. Uh, we have plenty right. of competitors who are gaining it as well. But it, yeah, it is It is nice that there is that standard now that, you know, kit manufacturers need to meet. I mean, when we first started making making tests, um, you know, we did the best we could. We didn't know how many different organisms we needed to test against or what kind of matrices that we needed to do because there was no standard. So at that point, yeah, it was really up to each individual company to do their due diligence and do the best that they can. Um, so it is nice now that these, um, these organizations are stepping up and saying, okay, now this is the standard that you need to meet. And so we're all right. on a equal footing. That's fantastic. And yeah, the other thing with the radiation, and just touching on this again, is it does represent a pretty significant issue from a process standpoint. So if we were to look at, uh, uh, I forget the guy, the author, Eli something or other, he was uh, from Israel. He wrote a book called The Goal, uh, which check it out if you haven't read it. And he talks about something called bottlenecks and capacities in manufacturing. So you have to identify your your capacities, how much can you grow in, in this instance, and your bottlenecks. At what point to where am I growing? Am I uh, constricting my ability to get product to market? When we're taking a product and we have limitations on the size or the, of what I can treat, um, so for example, say 15 pounds at a time, and I'm harvesting 100 pounds, and I have to take that 15 pounds and treat it for a period of you know hours, that creates a bottleneck in my capacity and an inability to get it to market. Mm -hmm. So it, it does have a financial uh, aspect to it as well. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, there's the whole, the adage of what, uh, <laughs> now I'm on the spot. I'm not going to say it right, but you know, a, a penny of prevention is worth a, a pound of, uh, uh, we're going to edit that out. You, you, you got know, it. What I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, no, you got it. Yeah. No, no. Prevention goes a long way. I mean, in, in every industry, in every modern industry, the goal is to create efficiency and reduce risk, uh, plain and simple. And that increases profitability. Um, so you, you want to make sure that your employees are safe uh, and they don't have risk. You want to make sure the products you get to market are safe and it doesn't have liability. And you want to look at your manufacturing structure to, structure to make it as streamlined and as quality as possible for the least possible cost. That's a recipe for success. Uh, right now, we don't have a lot of that in the uh, cannabis industry. I mean, we can see that just in the stock numbers of the public companies that are developing. Mm. Um, you know, there's a reason why, uh, you know, companies are losing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a result of product quality and lost product 
uh, and, and not being able to get it on market. Um, uh, ben, where are you out of Massachusetts? Yes. Um, I'm here in Illinois. I don't know about you, but have you ever seen how many oil and distillate products are on the market? Yeah. Why do you think that is? What's that? Why do you think that is? Uh, because flour doesn't doesn't pass compliance testing. You got it. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we were in a situation if you had uh, inventory control and you were able to say, oh, you know, the market's only buying, you know, six kilos of our distillate. Let's only make six kilos. Uh, but that's not a thing. So we talked a bit about irradiation and now and we and we hinted that your your approach is much different it's more of a preventative approach so talk a bit about what you do at ecobuds and clean theory to to help growers uh, prevent contamination yeah at the heart of what we do we're a biosecurity company uh we provide uh ideal chemistries in the way of a epa registered disinfectant and sanitizer um and we advocate for what is at the end of the end of the day, very, very basic uh, industrial hygiene techniques that are employed every day across the world. Uh, so concepts like cleaning every day, uh, making sure that uh, food contact surfaces don't have E. coli on them, uh, proper um, biosecurity checkpoints like foot baths and, and foot sprays and making sure people have dedicated clothing. Uh, and we look at the whole environment, not only the, so you, you look at it through what's called the lens of uh, socio-technical design, which is the relationship between people, process, and technology, okay? So the people need to be trained on the reasons why pathogens occur and how they are cross-contaminated uh, to give them the understanding or the tools necessary uh, to clean every day so it's, you know, it's not just a mindless job. Uh, we see this very much as a war uh, and a land, air, and sea approach. You know, we have pathogens moving in from outside to inside, uh, both on uh, tools and materials coming into the building. Uh, but then we have environmental threats. So in indoor precision agriculture, you know, uh, if we were to take an assay of uh, the microbiome outside, we would find that we have those very common plant pathogens and, um, those are brought in by HVAC. So we need to make sure that, um, you know, we, we change filtration uh, regularly. I mean, we've gone into facilities that hadn't changed filters in over two years, mm. you know, because they didn't think about it. And those things were sources of things like um, aspergillus or botrytis or powdery mildew. And like, for example, powdery mildew is a biotrope. So it's just going to sit on that filter until it's time and finds a hospitable, lovely leaf to land on to, to start growing. Uh, so so it's, it's a thousand different tiny approaches that add up to biosecurity that is both taught to the people uh, through, you know, process that is enabled by technology to prevent it. So th- what we do is uh, at the end of the day is prevent diseases from occurring in the first place from the time it's a seed to the time somebody walks in the door uh, to the time it's harvested. Uh, and the result is that you pass more testing. So in your experience, what's sort of the most common source of contamination? People. Yeah. <laughs> we are, we are dirty animals. Um, you know, if, if, 
if we were to look at it of how pathogens come in, now obviously there's airborne pathogens that come in through the air. Uh, if I have the right infrastructure in place, generally speaking, we can prevent a lot of that. But most of the problem occurs from people, whether it's um, a lack of cleaning or sanitation procedures, or maybe I am cloning and I use a tool. And let's say well, a big topic uh, that you guys have been talking about is HLV, sure. you know, and the transmit. And we're not really sure how HLV is transmitted yet, uh, but we can make some guesses. And one of them is cross-contamination. If I have an infected plant and I cut that with a pair of scissors and then I go to another plant that's maybe not infected and I cut it, that's a probable source of cross-contamination that could have been prevented by creating a step in between as simple as dunking those scissors in a, uh, in a disinfectant that was uh, proven to kill that uh, particular species of whatever pathogen we're dealing with. Yeah. And that's an important point too, right? Because I think, and if I mix this up, I apologize, but for hoplite and viroid in particular too, like using ethanol is not helpful. You need to actually use a bleach solution. Is that true? Well, um, yes and no. Uh, So, you know, chemistry has a lot to do, you know, understanding the chemistry and how things work is really important to how to kill things. Um, so ethanol on a virus uh, might work, but its mode of action is, is kind of drying things out, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, using 90% ethanol is really not going to be that effective because it evaporates too fast. So if you were to look at most EPA labels, you, know, you go to the store and you pick up a bottle of uh, bleach and it has an EPA label on there. Most every label is going to tell you that it has to have a 10 minute contact time. All right. So most people don't do that. You know, even at home, I'm guilty of it too. If I go to clean my counter, uh, I'll spray it down and then immediately wipe it up. That doesn't do a lot. Uh, you're just kind of pushing things around. So chemistry matters, you know, uh, ethanol, uh, is effective for certain things, but broad spectrum oxidants are most effective. So your oxidant line categories are like hydrogen peroxide, sulfur dioxide, ozone, um, uh, chlorine dioxide, uh, those things are highly effective against pathogens in different ways. And it's really important to match the circumstance of the chemistry to what you're trying to kill. Right. So, and and so what solution are you using when you, when you go into these cannabis grows and you're looking to kind of disinfect the entire uh, operation? Well, we, we use chlorine dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use chlorine dioxide because it creates a very high kill. Uh, and it is non-carcinogenic, non-mutinogenic, and doesn't leave a residue. And we use that because it is safe to use on food. So we have what's called a terminal no-rinse sanitation, uh, terminal no-rinse sanitizer status, which means you can spray it on a food contact surface. Food can touch it, and it doesn't leave a residue, and, and you can eat it. Um, you know, other things that we might use like a quaternary ammonia, for example, leaves a residue and those aren't necessarily good to consume. And also it will cause you to, uh, fail, uh, your pesticide, uh, uh, battery on, on your tests. And, you know, the other reasons you'd use chlorine dioxide is that it's, uh, very low in concentration, PPM, uh, parts per million. 
to its efficacy. So you can have a very high efficacy for a very low part per million, and it doesn't pose as many uh, uh, pathogenic or uh, not pathogenic uh, uh, employee exposure risks as other chemistries. So if we were to use things like bleach, uh, you know, the food industry doesn't typically use bleach. I mean, they do in some instances, but they don't use them because of the formation. One, it's highly affected by organic load. Uh, so if you have dirt or plants around, it's going to reduce its efficacy immediately. Um, it also cre- doesn't work in, in different pH ranges. So obviously different pHs are, occur in, in the cultivation environment. And the other big reason is, is the formation of uh, trihalomethanes, uh, THMs. And THMs are carcinogenic and uh, are extremely uh, uh, problematic. And it also can create taint inside of that uh, flower just by it being around. And now, are you applying chlorine dioxide to the plant or just the facility? Just to the facility. Uh, so, you know, when I talk to a new customer, uh, obviously our systems are, you know, we have a full system that gets installed. It takes time to get in. And generally speaking, when somebody has a problem, they have a problem today. Uh, so we'll take an inventory uh, on their, uh, you know, what, what tools do they have today? And, uh, you know, hopefully they have some uh, hydrogen peroxide. Uh, normally, uh, I think it was the company's BioSafe Systems. They've been around since the 60s, been a mainstay in cannabis. Uh, you know, I'll say, hey, go, go pick up your, your hydrogen peroxide and start using it and start cleaning every day. And you're going to see a tremendous impact um, immediately. So that's kind of where you start. Start cleaning every day. It it, it changes everything. And, and, you know, what we, we hear is, oh, well, it takes way too much labor for us to do that. Well, it might, but what you will gain in efficiency, you know, so if you're, you know, failing, you know, 40, 50, 60% of your, your compliance tests, you start cleaning every day and all of a sudden you're starting to pass 80%. You're going to make a lot more money than the money that you're spending in labor and in product. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting to see too when you go into these different cultivation facilities, just the 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 range of you know hygiene procedures that they have. You know, some people they're all gowned up, they have the hairnets and the booties, and many they might even go through a little um, sterilization step before they even enter the facility. And others, you know. There's people walking around in street clothes and, and touching right. plants. So yeah, now we we've seen some interesting things in facilities. Uh, I mean, the most interesting thing I saw in a cultivation area was a uh, a very old hot dog that was sitting in a corner, uh, growing mold on the bun and turning a odd colored black. So there's been some fun ones. Um, I think in a in a food process or at a in a edible. Um, and by the way, all these problems have been solved, but, uh, you know, it kind of, kind of scary to think that this is where some of our products come from. Um, you know, one of the food contact surfaces where they made edibles had millions of CFUs of fecal coliform, you know, so. Yikes. (laughs) And I have to imagine too that the fact that most of cannabis is grown indoors has to um, have its own challenges as well. Yeah, um, you know uh, we were talking about outdoor uh, grown cannabis, which I like and I prefer honestly. 
Um, but indoor precision ag, if you were to look at uh, what's called the bioaerosol process, so this is the relate this relationship between water, uh, plants, soil, the air, and the sunlight naturally occurring bioaerosol process. There's natural antagonists, right? So you know, uh, this is a, an extreme example, but the lightning strikes and it kills things around it. Uh, you know, you have air currents that are moving in a, a particular way and in Humboldt County, California, that really do a great job of preventing things like molds. Um, when we take that environment, we've done a very good job as humans in replicating conditions, humidity, temperature ranges, lighting. Uh, but one thing that we have not done a very good job at is replicating um, those conditions that create the checks and balances between uh, good and bad species. Um so, you know, when we look at indoor precision ag, there is a, a, a pro- pro- proliferation of disease because it compounds over time. So if you were to look at, say, a wall inside of a cultivation room, um, while that might look clean, after a couple years of spraying different agricultural amendments, fertilizers, uh, different types of oils, you, you, it will create a biofilm on that wall that is sufficient enough to, to hold life. And most people aren't cleaning that wall on a routine basis, if ever. Uh, so over time, these facilities and also these facilities may not have proper infrastructure, uh, meaning that they have built with materials that are not conducive to high water activity environments, which in turn makes uh, what's called sick building syndrome. Uh, so at that point, it's, uh, you know, you're going to have things like stachybotrys growing and um, you know, if they've used drywall, which we've seen, or drop ceilings, you'll see mold actually growing on those building materials. Uh, and over time, that situation compounds. So, it, 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 you know, indoor precision ag, as marvelous and wonderful as it is, does have a ways to go uh, to perfect those designs. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point about how the the, the problem can compound year over year because it doesn't have those natural checks and balances that you have outdoors. That's all right. And, and let's look at, um, you know, our modern food processing industry. They shut down and do full sterilization, not, not disinfection, sterilization. They shut down. I don't know one company yet that has even thought of, well, Hey, uh, maybe we should shut down for a week and clean everything. Um, they might do a room here and there, but, uh, that has not happened. And, and, you know, there's an economic reason why. I mean, it's very hard to stop production because then you have this delay because we're dealing with plants, not widgets, uh, and it takes time to grow. And that interrupts revenue flow. Right. All right. Winding down here, I'm going to throw a few questions at you, maybe lightning round. Um, Shoot. What is the most common pathogen that you, that you see when you're, um, when you're working with cannabis growers? Um, from growing, uh, from the growing phase, cause like you, you talked about, we kind of have two, two things here. Sure. Uh, so growing, it's going to be botrytis and powdery mildew. Um, and in compliance testing, it's going to be TYM total yeast and mold. Excellent. Um, if you had one tip to give cannabis growers to help them prevent con- contamination, what would it be? Set up a sanitation program and do it every day. Okay. Uh, elaborate a little bit. Like what's, what's a sure. simple sanitation, you know, step that everyone should be doing that you, you 
probably think they aren't. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, all your employees probably should have dedicated footwear and clothing. Um, you know, there's no chewing gum or uh, eating inside of cultivation areas. Uh, you want to have biosecurity checkpoints at critical areas, meaning foot baths or sprays that you can clean off your shoes. Uh, you want to clean all soilages and biofilms, sweep them, mop them, um, and clean every day using an EPA-registered sanitizer. Change your filters on a routine basis inside of your HVAC system. Monitor your, your humidity controls um, and create a culture of understanding what biosecurity is and, and sanitation. Excellent. What is the hardest pathogen to prevent? Um, you've probably seen Jurassic Park, right? Yes. Uh, you remember Malcolm, life finds a way. That's right. Uh, you know, pathogens are always going to be around. It's not, it's not going away. Um, I, I would say that there's certain pathogens like bacteria are a lot easier to kill than, say, a mold. Uh, so mold and spores yeah. are a lot more difficult to kill uh, than anything else because of the way it's uh, constructed physically and its size. Excellent. All right. That's all my questions, Kyle. So that's it. Well, right. I do have one, one more question. Um, are there any resources or um, websites, social media that you would like to plug so that if people want to learn more about you or more about biosecurity, uh, where can they go? You can visit our website at cleantheory.net. Uh, I, I definitely like people to go visit the EPA website to learn about what works and what doesn't. There's a lot of snake oil in uh, the cannabis industry and pe very convincing people to tell us uh, things that work. So check out the EPA uh, website um, and do your research. You know, there's a lot of convincing people out there that tell a great story and uh, want to make you believe that problems are solved with plugging something in or overnight. And that's just not the case. A lot of things take time and a lot of work effort to solve. Absolutely. There is a lot of snake oil, a lot of disinformation. That's one of the reasons we like to do this podcast is to bring on knowledgeable, experienced people like yourselves to uh, I appreciate it, ben. talk about uh, the real science. So yeah, I, I, I advocate quite a bit for medicinal genomics products and our lab partners. So I, uh, I really appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, enjoy uh, following you guys. So I wish you guys the best of success moving forward and continue. To you as well. And I hope we see you out of CAMED uh, next May. Sounds good, Ben. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kyle Baker. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Medicinal Genomics. Our next episode will drop September 14th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed23 event. And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. 
And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative industry leading event. I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.